Volume Three, Chapter Seven of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Seven, One Who Must Remember. Edward Heathcote had been away from Paris when Miss Meyerstein's telegram arrived at the Hotel de Bade. He had gone on a journey of something over a hundred miles on the Western Railway a journey undertaken with the idea of adding one more link to the chain which he had been slowly putting together one more chapter in the history of marie prevol he had been disappointed in those who were to have helped him in his task and it was to his own patience and resources that he was for the most part indebted for such progress as he had made through bard the ex-police officer had been able to do no more than to supply the formal record of the evidence before the juge d'instruction he could throw no light upon the previous history of the supposed murderer he could offer no clue to his subsequent fate sigismond trottier from whose keen wit heathcote had hoped for such valuable aid had broken down altogether he had failed to furnish any further reminiscences of his old acquaintance georges i want to know what the man was like said heathcote at their last interview if you could put me into communication with any artist friend of yours who knew georges well and can remember him well enough to give me his likeness from memory were it the slightest sketch i would pay your friend liberally for his work and be very grateful to you for bringing the matter about i know no such man answered trottier curtly that is very strange surely there must be some such person among those who can remember georges you say that his only friends were of the literary and artistic world non de non exclaimed trottier impatiently i suppose i had better be frank with you yes it is quite possible that there may be one who knew georges and who could give you such a sketch as you want but i will not help you to find that person i liked georges liked him well mark you i have profited by his generosity have gone to him for help when i was in very low water i am not going to turn and sting my benefactor granted that he was an assassin I can find excuses even for that crime for I know how he loved Marie Prévol. I am not going to help you to hunt him down if he is alive and has repented his sin let him alone to be dealt with by his creator and his judge what are we that we should pretend to condemn or to punish him I have sworn to myself to find the last link in the chain why should you want to hunt this man down that is my secret i have a motive and a very powerful one it may be that i have no intention to betray the wretch to justice that when the tangled skein be unravelled and the mystery of that man's life made clear that in the hour of success i may be merciful may hold my hand and keep the murderer's secret from the outside world but i want to know that secret i want to be able to stand face to face with that man and to say you are the murderer of marie prevol and her lover you are the murderer of the helpless girl who went alone to england having in her possession certain papers which threw too strong a light upon your guilty past you 
who have held your head erect before the world and have passed for a man of honor and probity you are the remorseless villain whose life stands twice forfeited to the law heathcote was pacing up and down the room intensely agitated he had abandoned himself wholly to the passion of the moment forgetful of trottier's presence forgetful of all things except that one fixed purpose of his mind which had become almost monomania what would you gain by this asked trottier wondering at this new aspect of his english friend revenge there is enough of the old adam left in the best of us to make revenge sweet what must it be to a man who has lost the one delight that made life worth living i cannot help you to your revenge answered trottier i was fond of georges i hope you may never be able to look in his face and accuse him of the past i hope he may be spared that shame i cannot for the life of me understand why you should pursue a stranger with such deadly hatred that is my secret i say again if you will not help me so be it i must go on working on my own account but the face the face that is perhaps the only identification possible the links of the chain fall into their places the facts that i have slowly gathered all point to one conclusion but absolute identification is impossible until i can find a portrait of the man who called himself georges you are not offended with me i hope no trottier i understand your refusal i respect your loyalty to an old friend but i must get the portrait i want somehow without your help thus ended all hope of aid from sigismond trottier drubard on the other hand had assured his client that he saw no new clue to the discovery of the missing murderer if that murderer were indeed identical with the man who met leonie lemarque at charing cross if he had surpassed himself in crime by the murder of that helpless girl it was for the english police to hunt him down with such a man as joseph distin to inspire their movements the english police making due allowance for the dullness of a roast beef-eating nation ought to work wonders and here was a case which offered the chances of distinction here was an assassin going about red-handed as it were after a murder not three months old you expect me to find the murderer of marie prévol a man who escaped us ten years ago and here are your pampered and overpaid english detectives who cannot find the man who threw leonie lemarque out of a railway carriage last july is that common sense do you think mr heathcote no sir in paris i am on my own ground i know this great city from cellar to garret her bridges her suburbs her quarries her sewers and caverns and waste places all the holes and crannies where crime and vice have hidden for the last forty years but from the moment your criminal has got to the other side of the channel i wash my hands of him my talents can serve you no further mr heathcote recompensed the police officer handsomely for the very little he had done and so they parted monsieur drubard vastly pleased with his client but still better pleased with himself he was a man whose benign consciousness of his own value in the social scale mellowed with advancing years having been thus abandoned by both his gifted coadjutors edward heathcote worked on by his own lights there was one person he told himself 
who might be able to assist him one person whose chief desire in life must be to see the murderer of marie prevol and her lover brought to his doom among the few scraps of information which trottier had given to his friend there was the fact that the dowager baronne de maucroix the widowed mother of the murdered man was still living she resided at her chateau in normandy where she led a life of strictest seclusion devoting herself to acts of charity and to the severest religious exercises it was in the hope of obtaining an interview with this lady that heathcote left paris upon the very morning on which miss meyerstein telegraphed the news of hilda's flight he had no letter of introduction no credentials to offer to madame de maucroix except the one fact of his keen interest in the after-fate of her son's murderer there was some audacity in the idea of so presenting himself before a venerable recluse of ancient family a woman who according to sigismond trottier had been distinguished in her youth for pride and exclusiveness a woman who had ranked herself with the conde and the mortemar who had ignored the house of orleans and loathed the imperial rule the chateau of the maucroix family was about five miles on the eastward side of rouen it was situate on low ground a little way from the banks of the seine an imposing pile of gothic architecture guarded by a moat and approached by an avenue of funereal yews the surrounding landscape was flat and uninteresting the broad bright river winding in bold curves across the level meads with here and there a willowy islet gave a certain charm to scenery which would otherwise have been without a redeeming feature far off in the distance the chimney shafts and spires of rouen rose dark against the grey october sky edward heathcote felt the depressing influence of those level fields the gloom of that dark avenue and sunless day it seemed to him as if he were going into a grave a place whence life and hope had fled for ever he crossed the low stone bridge which spanned the moat and found himself in an old-fashioned garden of that stately period which gave grandeur to the fountains and parterre of versailles here too there were large marble basins tritons and nereids but the fountains were not playing there was no pleasant plashing of silvery water-drops to break the dreary stillness of that deserted garden everything was in perfect order not a withered leaf upon the velvet lawns or the smooth gravel paths but even amidst this neatness there was a neglected look no flowers brightened the dark borders there were only the gloomy evergreens of a century's growth some of them pyramids of dark foliage others cut into fantastic shapes an artistic development of the gardeners of the past which had been carefully preserved by the gardeners of the present a white-haired maitre d'hôtel came out into the echoing hall to answer the stranger's inquiries madame la baronne is at home he replied stiffly madame rarely goes out of doors except to her church or under peculiar circumstances to her poor madame la baronne receives no one except her priest i hope that madame will make another exception in my favour said heathcote quietly be good enough to take her that letter 
he had written to madame de maucroix before leaving paris and he hoped that this letter would serve him as an open sesame madame for particular reasons of my own i am keenly desirous to trace the murderer of your son and believing myself to be already on the right track i venture to entreat the favour of an interview i am an englishman of good birth and education and i shall know how to respect any confidence with which you may honour me except madame the assurance of my high consideration edward heathcote to the baroness de maucroix heathcote was shown into a room leading out of the hall the first of a suite of rooms opening one into another in a remote perspective the doors were open and the visitor could see to the end of the vista the parquet floors with the cold light reflected on their polished surface from the high narrow windows the sculptured pediments above the doors the crystal girandole the sombre looking pictures all had an old-world air and gave the idea of a house which strangers visited now and then as a monument of the past but which had long been empty of domestic life and warmth and comfort the far-off echo of his own footsteps startled heathcote as he slowly paced the polished floor he had not long to wait the maitre d'hotel appeared after about ten minutes interval evidently astonished at the result of his mission and informed heathcote that the baroness would see him madame la baronne is old and in weak health monsieur said the servant who had grown grey in the service of his mistress and who worshipped her i hope your business with her is not of an agitating kind she seemed much troubled by your letter a violent shock might kill her there will be no violent shock my friend replied heathcote kindly i shall be obliged to talk to madame la baronne of painful memories but i shall be careful of her feelings i hope monsieur will pardon me for making this suggestion with all my heart the old servant led the way up the wide semicircular staircase to a corridor above and to a suite of rooms over those which heathcote had seen below they passed through an anteroom and then entered by a curtained doorway which led into madame de maucroix's sitting-room the only room which she had occupied for the last ten years the salons and music-rooms the library and card-room on the lower floor had remained empty and desolate since her son's death her bedchamber and dressing-room were situated behind this small salon and another door opened into the suite of apartments which had been occupied by her son these she visited and inspected daily they were kept in the order in which he had left them on his last journey to paris not an object however trifling had been changed there were logs burning in the hearth although the first chill winds of autumn had not yet been felt but the baroness kept a fire in her room all the year round the cheery blaze and a large black poodle of almost super canine intelligence were her only companions on an exquisite little buhl table by her armchair lay her missal and her imitation of christ these two books were her only literature the poodle advanced slowly across the persian carpet to meet the visitor and made a deliberate inspection the result was satisfactory for he gave three or four solemn swings of his leonine tail 
and then composed himself in a dignified position in front of the fire the baroness who was seated in a deep and spacious armchair acknowledged heathcote's entrance only by a dignified bend of her head she was a woman of remarkable appearance even in the sixty-seventh year of her age she possessed that classic beauty of feature which time cannot take away no matter that the pale pure skin was faded from its youthful bloom that the lines of care and thought were drawn deeply upon the broad brow and about the melancholy mouth the outline of the face was such as a sculptor would have chosen for a hecuba or a dido she was above the average height of women and sat erect in her high-backed chair with a majestic air which impressed edward heathcote her plainly fashioned black silk gown and indian muslin fichu recalled delaroche's famous picture of marie antoinette and her cast of countenance in some wise resembled that of the martyred queen but her features were more perfect in their harmony the outline was more statuesque in a word the baroness had been lovelier than the queen she motioned heathcote to the chair on the opposite side of the hearth you are interested in tracing the murderer of my son she said that is strange after ten years and you an englishman what concern can you have in the fate of that man there was the faintest quiver in her voice as she spoke of her son otherwise her tones were clear and self-possessed her large dark eyes contemplated the stranger with calmest scrutiny that is in some wise my secret madame replied heathcote i will be as frank with you as i can but there are motives which i must keep to myself until this investigation of mine has come to an end until i can tell you that i have found the murderer of marie prevol that i have proof positive of his guilt and then monsieur what then asked the baroness madame it is perhaps you who should be the arbiter of the murderer's fate in the event of such evidence as may be conclusive to you and me being also strong enough to ensure his conviction by a french jury french jurymen are so merciful madame and your judges so full of sentiment they would perhaps regard the death of those two young people slain in the flower of their youth as an outbreak of jealous feeling for which the murderer was to be pitied rather than punished the law is always kind to the shedders of blood it is the child who steals a loaf or the journalist who by some carelessly edited paragraph wounds the fine feelings of our aristocracy it is for such as these there is no mercy but in the event of my being able to find the assassin and to furnish conclusive evidence of his guilt what would be your line of conduct madame the dowager was slow to reply she waited with fixed brows meditative absorbed for some moments there was a time she said at last when i should have been quick to reply to such a question when i thirsted for blood of my son's murderer yes when my parched lips longed to drink that blood as the savage laps the life-stream of his foe but years have worked their chastening influence years given up to religious exercises mark you monsieur not wasted upon the frivolities of this world i have sought for consolation from no carnal sources 
pleasure has never crossed the threshold of my dwelling since my son's corpse was carried in at my door some people try to forget their griefs they steep themselves in the banalities of this life they stifle memory amidst the intoxications of a frivolous existence i am not one of those i have nursed my sorrow lived with it lived upon it until looking back it seems to me that even in these long slow years of mourning i have not been actually separated from my dead son in my prayers in my thoughts in my waking and sleeping his image has been ever-present the most precious part of my existence i believe that he is in heaven that such prayers as have been breathed for him together with the services of the church must have shortened his time of purgation that his purified soul is at rest in the blessed home where i hope some day to rejoin him confession penance mortifications of all kinds have subjugated the natural evil in my character my cry for vengeance has long been dumb if that cruel murderer yet lives i hope that he may be brought by suffering to repentance i do not hunger for his death there was such an air of lofty feeling such absolute truth in the tone and manner of madame de maucroix that heathcote could but admire and respect this cold serenity of grief he has brought my grey hairs in sorrow to the grave said the baroness softly but i have been taught to pity all sinners as our saviour pitied the worst and vilest with inexhaustible compassion madame if you who so loved your son can be merciful there is no one living who has a right to exact the murderer's blood and now forgive me if i venture to question you about that sad story for some time past i have devoted myself to this case i have slowly put together the links of a chain of evidence until there is but little wanting to complete the circle your knowledge may furnish me with those missing links tell me in the first place whether you believe and have always believed that the man called georges was the murderer of your son i have never doubted his guilt there was no one else no one whom my boy had ever offended remember monsieur he was but three-and-twenty years of age amiable generous accomplished beloved by all who knew him he had not an enemy except the man whose jealousy he had aroused did he know the man georges unhappily yes had he never known georges he would never have fallen in love with mademoiselle Prévol. georges was an intimate friend of an artist whom my son patronized a remarkably clever painter who twelve or thirteen years ago promised to become famous but who never fulfilled that promise maxime sat to this monsieur tillet for a half-length portrait the man had a genius for portraits and tillet introduced him to the bohemian circle in which georges was living it was a very small circle consisting of about a dozen men in all mostly journalists and painters georges appeared to have a liking for my son maxime's youth and freshness interested him he said in a world where everybody was blasé he invited him to little suppers of three or four intimates at which marie prévol was present from that hour my son's head was turned he fell passionately in love with this actress 
he thought of her by day and night abandoned himself utterly to his idolatry desired ardently to make her his wife he did not believe that she was married to georges that was his difficulty in his love and reverence for her he could not endure to think of her as in a degraded position yet if she were already a wife maxime could never hope to win her in his mad headstrong love he was ready to forgive her past career to redeem her from her degraded position and make her the baroness de maucroix he who had been educated in the pride of race as in the gospel was willing to marry an actress with a tarnished character did he make you the confidant of his passion madame for some time he kept his secret from me but i knew that he was unhappy and i knew that there was only one kind of grief possible in such a life as his where nature and fortune had been alike lavish he had been my companion and adviser from the day of my widowhood and we were nearer and dearer to each other and more in each other's confidence than mothers and sons usually are more than once i had entreated him to tell me the nature of his trouble to let me help him if that were possible and he had told me that there was no one who could help him in the great crisis of his life i must be either the happiest or the most miserable of men he said one night i went into his room and found him ill feverish in a half delirious state raving about marie preval this broke the ice and during the brief illness that followed the effect of cold fatigue excitement and late hours i obtained his confidence he told me the whole story of his love for this beautiful actress how at their first meeting he had been enslaved by her exquisite loveliness her indescribable charm of manner he protested that her nature was purity itself despite her false position she was the victim of circumstances and then he told me that georges spoke of her as his wife treated her with a respect rarely shown to women of light character and this thought that his idol was another man's wife filled my unhappy son with despair you warned him of the danger of his position no doubt madame not once only but again and again with all the fervour of a mother's prayers did i implore him to escape from this fatal entanglement i urged him to travel to go to spain italy africa algiers was at that time a favourite resort for men of fashion anywhere so long as he withdrew himself from the fascination which could end only in ruin but it was in vain that i pleaded passion was stronger than common sense duty or religion he was caught on a wheel from which he would not even try to extricate himself and your affection could do nothing nothing from that time my son was lost to me he shrank from confiding in me not because i have been severe never had i breathed one uncharitable word against the woman he loved his love made her sacred to me but i had spoken the words of common sense i had tried to stand between him and his own folly that was enough he loved his madness better than he loved me he who had been until that time almost an adoring son when the time came for us to come here for the autumn he refused to leave paris and i was too anxious to allow him to remain there alone i stayed at our house in the rue de l'université 
where my son had his apartments his private keys and private staircase by which he could come in at any hour without his movements being known to the household i hardly know how he lived or what he did during those long days of july and august while all our circle of acquaintance were away by the sea or in the mountains and while we seemed to be alone in the deserted city several of the theatres were closed during those months but the porte saint martin had made a great success with a fairy piece and kept open for the strangers who filled paris i believe that my son went every night to the theatre that he saw marie prevol at every opportunity and that his only motive in life was his love for her for me the days went by in dull monotony a presentiment of evil oppressed me waking or sleeping long before the coming of calamity i felt the agony of an inevitable grief i knew not what form my misery would take but i knew that my boy was doomed when they brought home his bleeding corpse in the summer evening four-and-twenty hours after the murder i met the messengers of evil as one prepared for the worst i had lost him long before his death she spoke with infinite composure she had familiarized herself with her sorrow lived with it cherished it until grief had lost its power to agitate not a tone faltered as she spoke of that tragical past her countenance was as calm as marble every line in her noble face spoke of a settled sorrow every line had become unalterable as the lines of a statue you say madame that the painter tillet was upon intimate terms with georges said heathcote is this monsieur tillet still living i believe so i never heard of his death he has clever sons whose names are before the public i have heard people mention them though i have never seen their works my knowledge of secular art and literature ceased ten years ago i should be glad to find monsieur tillet said heathcote he is the very man i want to discover a man whose pencil could recall for me the face of the missing georges you say madame that he was an intimate friend of georges and that he was a clever portrait painter such a man would not have forgotten his friend's face if you knew what georges was like do you suppose you could find him asked the baroness without eagerness but with a grave intensity which accentuated the severe lines of her countenance yes replied heathcote i believe that in four-and-twenty hours i could lay my hand on the assassin's shoulder and say thou art the man in four-and-twenty hours there is a distance then between you the man you suspect is not in paris no he is not in paris and if by means of monsieur tillet's art you are able to assure yourself of his identity how will you deal with him would you deliver him up to justice ah madame who knows our great poet has said that there is a divinity which shapes our ends not as we have planned them if the assassin of your son is the person i believe him to be he is already punished he is a doomed man joy and hope and comfort are dead to him the criminal court and the guillotine could be no harder ordeal than the suffering of his daily life if he is guilty heaven has not been blind to his sin the eternal doomsman has pronounced his sentence a faint flush illuminated the settled pallor of madame de maucroix's countenance 
a light sparkled in her eyes i knew that he would not escape she said in a low voice heaven is just if you will kindly give me monsieur tillet's address madame i shall be deeply obliged i can only tell you an address of ten years ago monsieur tillet lived at that time in the rue saint guillaume he was then in the flush of success and i have heard my son say that he had a handsome apartment where he may live now in his decadence i know not but his sons are known and you will have no difficulty in getting information i apprehend not madame and now if you will permit me i would ask one more question as many as you please monsieur have you in your possession any scrap of georges writing any note however brief no there was no such thing found among my boy's effects the police requested that such a letter or letters should be looked for they too were anxious to procure a specimen of the suspected man's writing but although i looked most carefully through all my son's papers i discovered no such letter there were two or three notes from tillet conveying invitations from georges but there was no direct communications from the man himself he was doubtless a man who had taken the old saying to heart said heathcote litera scripta manet i have to thank you madame for your gracious reception and above all for your candour in a life like mine monsieur there is no room for untruthfulness or hypocrisy my existence moves in too narrow a circle i have no interest outside my son's grave and my own hope of salvation perhaps before you leave this house you would like to see the apartments in which maxine lived they have been kept just as he left them when he went back to paris for the last time after the shooting season i should like much to see them said heathcote standing hat in hand before the baroness it seemed to him that she had a melancholy pleasure in dwelling on the image of her murdered son that it would gratify her to show the rooms which he had inhabited even to a stranger the baroness rose a tall erect figure dignified and graceful in advancing age as she had been in the bloom of her beauty when louis philippe was king she moved with stately steps towards the door at the end of her salon and led the way into the adjoining room it was a large room richly furnished and full of such luxuries as a young man loves dwarf bookcases lined the four walls on one side above the array of richly bounded volumes appeared a costly collection of arms both modern and antique the fireplace was a kind of alcove furnished with luxurious seats upholstered in copper-red velvet old tapestry old miniatures bronzes curios of all kinds filled the room with endless varieties of form and color a tapestry curtain screened the door of the adjoining bedchamber the baroness drew aside the heavy tapestry with her wasted hand and led the stranger into the room where her son had slept through so many peaceful nights in his happy youth a carved ivory crucifix of large size a chef d'oeuvre yellow with age hung over the pillow on which that young head had so often slumbered the attenuated form of the redeemer showed in sharp relief against the olive velvet draperies of the bed heathcote observed that the persian rug beside the bed was worn in the centre as if with much use 
and he could guess whose knees had left the trace of prayerful hours upon the fabric as he saw the eyes of the dowager fixed upon that pallid figure of her martyred saviour i have lived half my days for the last ten years in this room she said quietly i hope to die here if i have sense and knowledge left me i shall creep here when i feel that my end is near over the mantelpiece hung maxime de maucroix's portrait the picture of a bright young face perfect in form and colouring the most beautiful by reason of the hope and gladness that shone in the sunny eyes the frank clear outlook of an untainted soul heathcote could understand the fascination exercised over a woman like marie prevol by such a man as this with all the adjuncts of rank talent wealth and fashion they went back to the baroness's salon and heathcote took his leave to return to rouen where he stayed the night End of chapter 7